This is the Jocko Unraveling Podcast, episode four, with Daryl Cooper and me, Jocko Willink. And we are about to pick up the thread of Jocko going to war. I want to read something from Tom Rick's book, Fiasco, in the early part, from the earliest part of the invasion, because I want to give people an idea of uh, the fire you were jumping into in September, October 2003. So the war started in March, and the conventional forces, the Iraqis and the resistance in the cities, uh, is is precisely the match for the U.S. military that you think it is, and we burn through them. And uh, the 3rd Infantry Division gets up into Baghdad quick. They take the airport. They make their thunder run through the city, and the regime collapses very rapidly. That's in March, in early April. And this passage is uh, referring to a period now, April into May. Quote, Baghdad was falling apart in front of the eyes of the U.S. military, with buildings being looted and parents afraid to let their children outside, but no one had orders to do anything about it. Looking back several years later, Colonel Alan King, the head of civil affairs for 3ID, spoke of April 2003 with a slow, chilled tone of horror in his voice. I got to Baghdad and was told, you've got 24 hours to come up with a phase four plan. On the night of April 8th, Colonel John Sterling, chief of staff of 3ID, came to me and said, I just got off the phone with the Corps chief of staff, and I asked him for the reconstruction plan, and he said there isn't one. So you've got 24 hours to come up with one. King was stunned. He had been asking for months for just such a plan and had been told that when the time came, he would be given it. Lacking clear orders about what to do once in Baghdad, the 3rd Infantry Division more or less stayed in place in the capital. You didn't find many dismounted patrols with 3ID, recalled Jay Garner, a retired Army general and not one to lightly criticize his old peers. They kind of stayed with their platforms, that is, their tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles. On April 6th, Lieutenant Douglas Hoyt, a platoon leader with 3ID, saw looters for the first time. Quote, I remembered looking through the sights on my tank at people and trying to determine if they were hostile or not, he recalled later. He didn't stop them. It was not our mission at the time. The division's official after-action review states that it had no orders to do anything else. Quote, 3rd Infantry Division transitioned into Phase 4 SASO, that's uh, Security and Stability Ops, with no plan from Higher HQ, it reported. There was no guidance for restoring order in Baghdad, creating an interim government, hiring government and essential services employees, and ensuring that the judicial system was operational. The result was a power and authority vacuum created by our failure to immediately replace key government institutions. The president announced that our national goal was regime change. This is still reading from the third ID report. That our national goal was regime change, yet there was no timely plan prepared for the obvious consequences of regime change. As a matter of law and fact, the United States is an occupying power in Iraq, even if we characterize ourselves as liberators. Because of the refusal to acknowledge our occupier status, commanders did not initially take measures available to occupying powers, such as imposing curfews, directing civilians to return to work, and controlling the local government and populace. The failure to act after we displaced the regime created a power vacuum, which others immediately tried to fill. 
Now, I know that uh, war is a very confusing thing, and nobody has a plan after the first punch gets thrown in a fight. Um, but there were some decisions made in the earliest days of this war that I find pretty inexplicable, um, specifically because they went against the advice of the military and the intelligence establishment. And they were made seemingly for ideological and political reasons. Um, L. Paul Bremer, he was the civilian who was sent over to head the Coalition Provisional Authority, the CPA, the civilian authority structure in Iraq. Uh, Let's just talk about what you just read before we even jump into the rest of this. So this is, you know, clearly massively short-sighted. And there's a couple reasons why I think that that can unfold um, the way it did. And and I'm guessing um, when you get, when you execute this thing that you think could take a long time, and all of a sudden you've, you you know, you're, you're, you got to the top of the mountain, right? You achieved your goal, and yet you did it so quickly that you don't know what to do next, and and that is absolutely. I mean, the, when you read that, um, it's there's no excuse for it. Like, there's no excuse to think there. Even even if you thought, even if you thought, like let's let's say your thought is going into this thing. Hey, you know what? There, the people have been waiting for this. We'll get Saddam out of there, and the people will be ready to jump for joy. Even if that's your assessment. You, you have to understand human nature well enough to recognize that what that looks like, if you don't control it, will not be a pretty thing. That, that's, you, to, to not be able to recognize that is a massive shortfall and it is very short-sighted. So, and again, when you, when you look at a, you know, a division commander or a brigade commander, division commander, like, yeah, they're thinking about it, but believe me, they're thinking about like how we're going to get up there and how, what's going to happen to my troops and what am I doing with my dead and wounded and that they got some pretty heavy thoughts. Oh yeah. There, there has to be a commander, you know, the next, the next echelon of command is should be saying, okay, cool. I got these guys out there on the front lines that are going to win this thing for me. Here's what we're going to do next. You know, I used to tell the way I used to break down roles and responsibilities for a SEAL platoon. I'd say, hey, look, the the enlisted leadership is handling the tactical problem that we got going on right now. The officer is looking to figure out what the next move is going to be. So what we have in this, you know, you expand that out several levels of the chain of command, and what you get is you got, you know, division commanders, brigade commanders, battalion commanders that are pushing up, that are there in this tactical situation to win. The next echelon up the chain of command should be going, okay, what's our next move gonna be? And that's what that's the way things are supposed to work. And clearly there this is a this is a disaster. And you can see it start to unfold. The uh, the civilians the civilian leadership structure, the DOD and um in the administration, they didn't really expect there to be a reconstruction problem. They did expect the Iraqis to throw flowers at our feet and thank us for liberating them. And then we can look around and say, okay, now that Saddam's out of power, 
you know, who are some of the good guys that we've got in here? You, you, you can run this ministry now, right? Um, and so they didn't push anybody to create a phase four plan for what to do after we defeated the Iraqi regime, right? And the military, at least at the time, you know, they want to go in there and kick some ass. They're, they're not, they don't want to have to deal with the phase four plan if they don't have to. And if the civilians are not pushing them on it, they're happy, they were happy, unfortunately, to, uh, to assume that the civilians were taking care of that, that they were going to send in a guy like Bremer. And he was working with uh, Chalabi and uh, the other people, the provisional government that we had in place, and that, that they had a plan for that. Yeah. And let me say something else here. When you're when you're in that moment, right? If you take if you take this if you take early on in my combat career going to Iraq, what we were worried about out of the gate was how we're going to do an assault. That's what we're worried about. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, after the assault, we do something called sensitive site exploitation where we search and we you know, we search everything and we look for everything. We didn't rehearse that. Cuz you know what? Once we get the target secure, it doesn't really matter. Right? Everything's going to be fine. Like we'll figure it out. We want you want to want us to look around. You want us to look for computers. You want us to look for any intel that we might find. Cool. We, we'll figure it out. What we're worried about is taking down the target. That's what we're worried about. This is the exact same story, right? What the divisional commanders, what the guys on the ground are worried about is: look, we need to get this target secure. And once they they figure, once we get the target secure, cool. We'll, we'll have some time. We'll be able to breathe. We'll be able to. Hey, uh, it looks like people get a little crazy. Okay, let's let's. Let's get a grip on this thing. Let's settle this thing down, and we, you know, let's get this sorted out. So, even to say, if I'm going to make another excuse, or if I'm going to make an excuse, my excuse would be, "Hey, look, we were focused on getting the target secure, and that's okay. Like, I get it. And yeah, my upper echelon should have been like, okay, you know what? Hey, once you get the target secure, don't worry. We got a, we got another group over here, and we're gonna come in, and these are the important things that we're gonna follow, and this is the structure we're gonna set up, and here's how we're gonna keep civilians from doing bad things, and here's why we're gonna get civilians to do good things, and here's the money we're gonna pump into the economy, and here's how we're gonna transition, you know, businesses that we set up into businesses that the civilian sector is leading. I mean, this is all stuff that you could kind of map out, But then you get to a point where you've got target secure and it's not the way you want it to be. It's not really secure. And so then what you have to do is you have to take action, right? So so this is a good lesson learned. And look, it's easy to sit here hindsight 2020. I would have done this, sure. I would have done that. No, I'm not gonna sit here and say that. <clears throat> what I am saying is as a leader, as a leader listening to this, you should be thinking, okay, I accomplished my mission. The mission I was focused on, I accomplished. Immediately, you have to say, what is my next mission? Where is this going? What has changed since I got done? Because if you think the battlefield doesn't change, and this goes for business, this goes for life, this goes for everything. If you think that things aren't gonna change, you're wrong. And part of the whole OODA loop, right? The OODA loop is, you know, you, you observe, orient, decide, and act. So you have to do that. You, this isn't just, a cool thing to say like you have to do it and when you look around and you see things starting to deteriorate rapidly rapidly too then you you have to decide to do something else and then you need to act i will also say this and you 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 the way you say this the way you say these things you know you make it very clear very rapidly like you just said that you just said rapidly deteriorating 
And you asked me in between, before we recorded, you're like, did you know what was going on? And like, yeah, I knew. It did not appear. The trajectory, the downward trajectory wasn't as clear as it is right now as we're reading through it. I'm telling you, I meant specifically the uh, the explosion of looting when it happened. I mean, it it that happened at a at a wide scale in Baghdad almost immediately after we took that city, uh, so that people were tearing pipes out of the walls of the ministries yeah, and things. Just it, it happened so rapidly that it would have been unreasonable to expect our forces to know how to deal with that. I mean, Bremer, Paul Bremer, the civilian who was in charge by that time in May, he told the military to start shooting the looters. And the military told him, we're not shooting looters. What are you talking about? And somebody leaked it to the press. And, you know, that caused the effect that you, you would think. Uh, but the military wasn't – we weren't equipped to, d- to deal with that yet. I think we had two light brigades in Baghdad at the time when the looting started. And so these guys are in a city of five or six million people, two, two brigades basically at the time. And we don't know what's uh, going to be happening, you know, at that moment. There, there, there's another thing that, that comes into play here. And it's sometimes I talk about hey if you're an, if you're a leader and you can and you can patrol you know five kilometers an hour with a hundred pound rucksack on and so you then set up your your plan so that the whole platoon's going to do five kilometers an hour with a hundred pound rucksack you get out in the field they can't do it so it's a little bit of a blind spot for you to think that other people can. Can do what you're going to do. There's a similar a similar blind side. I just was talking to a client the other day where the blind spot is you're looking at something from a benevolent position where you think, oh my my, my leaders, they're not going to worry about you know their paycheck. They're going to take care of their people. And that's a blind spot because just because you're not worried about your paycheck. And you've got a good amount of money saved and you're going to do okay, doesn't mean some of your frontline leaders aren't going to be like, wait a second, I would rather fire every single one of my people and still get a paycheck. So there becomes a blind spot because you don't have the same values that your leaders do. You don't have the same. The first example is, hey, I don't have the same physical uh, capabilities that, or my, my team doesn't have the same physical capabilities anymore as I do. So that's a little blind spot. The second one is my subordinates don't have the same value structure, so they might make these decisions different than I would. And if I don't know that, then I just expect everyone to do the right thing. Well, guess what we have here? Here's the culture. These Americans are going, hey, once we've liberated them, they're gonna be excited to start their entrepreneurial venture that they've been thinking about. And they are, it's a blind spot. The blind spot is when you when you get rid of the government, the first people that are gonna take action are the people that are looking to steal, rob, you know, murder, rape, to, you know, to exude their power over the situation. And the, the friendly, benevolent person that would have been excited to open a shop isn't gonna even make, you know, is gonna make a half a step in that direction and then lock their doors and say, I'm not going outside, it's mayhem. The military agreed to go in with fewer troops than they wanted to go in with at the beginning because they were under the impression that they were going to be reinforced by 1st Cavalry relatively rapidly. Um, In April, uh, I want to say April 21st, 
This is at the last moment. It's a week or two before First Cav is supposed to uh, deploy. Rumsfeld makes a call, decides that they're not needed, yeah. and so they don't go. And rather than having First, uh, First Armored Division come in and overlap with the 3rd Infantry Division for a while as primary Baghdad force, they decide that once 3AD gets there, or 1AD gets there, 3AD is just going home. And so that amounts to no reinforcements at all. Um, and then the military believed that we were going to have access to uh, a good portion of the Iraqi. Which, which, by the way, just uh, just throwing it out there, yeah. right? Like, you know, the difference between the 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 bad general and the good general is the the good general knows how and when to employ his reinforcements, and he holds it till the last minute. Like he doesn't commit those reinforcements. When you go, I don't need reinforcements. Th- 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 that's not good. And and to give th- that's. I think uh, first cab is seventeen, eighteen thousand men. I mean, that's a serious force to get pulled, especially when the military at this point is deployed in Iraq with the expectation that it's going to be showing up. Um, they're also deployed with the expectation that they're going to have access to some of the Iraqi security forces and police. Uh, that they're already actively getting together. Major General Mattis at the time is working with a bunch of generals. You know, he's got that famous quote to the Iraqi generals that if any of you mess with me, I'll kill you all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a bunch of military guys um, and civilian staff at CENTCOM who are working with these Iraqi generals who are like, yeah, look, I got a bunch of people that are loyal to me who will do what I say. They're good boys. They're not crazy. Um, let's let's get this thing together and we can provide security in the areas that, you know, we're used to. And Bremer does a few things. Again, Bremer's the civilian authority that's sent over by the Bush administration. Um, the, the Defense Department and the Bush administration at this point are not getting along well with the military. The military feels like they're not being listened to at the high levels. Um, relationships are the most important thing. Yeah. You know, relationships are more important than the chain of command. And when you have two organizations that need to work that need to work uh, together and you don't have relationships this is a disaster yeah, and it gets worse so um they they're having trouble uh, the, the the guy who's in charge of the civilian authority at first is a retired general jay garner right and he's got a pretty decent uh rapport with the generals but they feel like he isn't pursuing debatification some other things some of the administration's priorities that he's not pursuing aggressively enough so after a month they call him tell him he's coming home this new guy bremer's coming in I kid you not, this sounds like something out of, a, out of an Onion article. Uh, Paul Bremer had to get a two-week crash course in Middle Eastern politics before they sent him over to be the head civilian in charge of the Iraqi occupation. Okay, and so he shows up with a list of things that he's going to do. On day one, he uh, tells everybody that he is going to institute a radical debathification process, right? Anybody who was rank of colonel and above in the military um, or any equivalent of that in the civilian sector in a country like Iraq where a lot of the industries are state-owned, a lot of the, you know, the corporations are state-owned, anybody who was in the top three or four layers of management of any of those industries, any of the government ministries, the military, all of this, they're not only fired, their pensions are cut, and they're not allowed to work in public life and in the public sector ever again. Okay, right? so let, let me jump in. Um, here's what is awful about this, the way this is unfolding. It happens all the time in the military, and it happens in the civilian sector too, 
that someone with not a lot of experience in a certain arena, for whatever reason, gets put in charge of that arena. This is this is a this happens. Uh, is it is it an ideal case? No, it's not an ideal case. It happens all the time. You know, the U.S. military is set up in such a way that an officer who got commissioned after 13 weeks of officer candidate school is going to show up on a ship and be, you know, in a department. He's going to be a platoon commander in the Marine Corps or the Army. I mean, he is going to be in charge of people that have vastly more experience than he does. It happens in the civilian sector as well. A, 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 a kid goes to school for civil engineering and then reports to a job site on a big construction project and he's, he's quote, in charge of these construction guys, these foremen that have been working for 27 years. It, it's okay. These things work as long as the leader that's stepping in is humble enough to say, I don't know everything, let me sit back, Please educate me. Please give me your advice on what you think we should do. Please let's formulate a plan together that makes sense to everyone in this room. I'm here to support what you guys need. Somebody that comes into a a situation, and I don't care if it's something as bigger than a platoon, but it's something as big as this situation. I'm telling you right now, if you put a good leader in that situation without, with no experience, and with no two-week course, if you put the right person in there, they would have they would have squared this away. I'm telling you that right now. Yeah. I know this to be I, I know this to be true. Like the times when I was telling you on, on another podcast, like if I tell you something's 100, percent I'm telling you, yeah. you put a good leader with a good humble leader into very challenging situations, it'll be okay. I don't think there's any question that good leadership could have change the whole at this point could have changed the whole trajectory of the war so you get a guy rolling in there who is not humble here's what actually happened by the way he comes in with this debathification order a radical one uh jay garner the retired army general who had been who he's replacing says oh you you can't do this this is this is going to put 30 to fifty thousand highly influential people the people who know how to run the industries the the ministries all the managers doctors professors you're going to put them all out on the street and tell them they can never work in public life again. And Bremer says, I'm not here to get your advice on this. This is what I'm doing. He says, okay, well, I need backup. He goes and gets the CIA station chief. He says, come talk to this guy with me. They go in and say, oh, you definitely can't do this. He said, I'm not having a discussion about it. This is what I'm doing. Okay. That's what happened. <laughs> a week later, he decides that he's going to disband the entire Iraqi military. Yeah. The entire interior ministry, which is, uh, you know, the entire police force, internal security forces. You're talking about, you know, 385,000 armed men from the Iraqi military. military Military-age fighting males. Military-age fighting males who are now out of work, um, who our military guys, Mattis talks about this. Some of the other generals talk about this. We were working with them. We had a a list of names of Iraqi soldiers, 125,000 names of people who were ready to fall right back into ranks and assist in reconstruction, assist in security operations in different parts of the country. And we didn't have enough soldiers to do that on our own, right? So we uh, uh, sent- uh, not, not to mention some little things like we don't speak the language. 
We don't know the country. We don't know the culture. Like all those things. He put half a million men, influential people, all Sunni, by the way, for the most part, because that's just how it played out. That's what the previous regime was on the street and made them pariahs in society overnight. A lot of these are armed fighting age men. Um, He's ignoring everybody's advice when he does these things. And he's doing it for, you know, the people who are kind of pushing him to do this. Douglas Fight back in uh, back in Washington, um, Paul Wolfowitz. These are guys who's they lost ancestors in the Holocaust. And they're looking at this as Saddam Hussein is Hitler. Um, this is denazification. You're not going to let Nazis continue to work in the government of But if they'd done a little more history, they would find out that we tried that in Germany. And by 1949, 1950, we were like, you know, we're going to have to moderate this a little bit because these are the only people that have worked in government for the last 10 years, 12 years. And so it got to a point where even then we were like, all right, you're a member of the Nazi party. What were you, just a junior member? You were a teacher. Okay, fine. You can have your teaching job back. Even then we had to moderate. But they were coming at this from an ideological perspective. They had an idea in mind of how they were going to run this thing. And they were taking advice from nobody. And overnight... You know, we've got hundreds of thousands of young fighting age men who, in, in, in an honor culture, right, in a culture where a man's ability to take care of his family and be the man, the provider is it's important everywhere. It's a whole different ball game over there. And the Sunni population now feels that we're coming in there to attack and assault them. Um, and we're losing all this while we're losing control of the country, while uh, we're starting to see killings and robberies and reprisals and looting on a wide scale. And, uh, and, and those are the conditions under which, against all advice, he's making these decisions. And, I mean, a lot of Iraqis and a lot of American soldiers paid for, those, for that arrogance. I, I, I believe that. Um, and, again, this is a guy of all people that if he should have been listening to the advice of the people on the ground, it should be a guy who had to get a two-week crash course on Middle East. He, he came out of the, you know, he was, he, was a, he was an ambassador. He was a diplomat for a while, and he was a private sector consultant guy. You know, he worked in just, he was just a business consultant. Once again, this is why of all traits that a leader needs to have, humility is the most important one over and over and over again. And this is the situation you can see. It sickens me to revisit this. And you think, um, yeah, you, you, you think all it takes is a little bit of humility and this, this problem would not have happened. And there's another quote, uh, I think it's from Patton, where he says, the general on the ground is always right. Meaning, yeah. look, when you're in the rear, the general on the front is always right, whatever the, whatever the quote is. It's like, yeah, when I show up somewhere and I just think I know better than everybody else. General Franks, who's the commander of all our forces at the time, he, by a lot of reports, can, can hardly be in the same room as this guy. He wants to wring his neck. So the, you got the commanding general of our forces over there and the civilian authority over there who can hardly be in the same room. And then another thing that is... It's kind of inexplicable happens. Over the course of about a month and a half, the commanding general, General Franks, he retires. And by, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say this because I don't know it, but there are several other officers and civilians who were there at the time who say that he checked out kind of early um, mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, General McKiernan, he was the uh, ground forces commander in charge of CIFLIC at the time. He gets bounced in June. So after just a couple months, um, 
several other officers, the, the, the head of the Army, the chief of staff of the Army at the time, um, he leaves. And to give you an idea of the, their, his relationship to the civilians, the chief of staff of the Army retires in June or July, and neither Rumsfeld, the secretary of defense, nor his deputy, Wolfowitz, show up to his retirement ceremony. Okay, we're in the middle of the start of a war, and that's the relationship that they had. That they had. Uh, Rumsfeld needs to replace him. He passes over all the three- and four-star generals in the Army, and he calls up a guy who had retired three years earlier and puts him in charge, which, you know, is fine. He's a, he's a good man. By all accounts, he did a fine job, but it gives you an idea of the relationship that civilians yeah. have to the military at this point. And one thing that really um, is a problem with this is when you have a guy now, so now, so now when these new military commanders roll in, now the guy that, quote, has the experience on the ground is Bremer. Right. And since the new guy's coming in, you hope that they have these kind of humble, hey, what are we doing? T- tell me what we need to get done. How can I support the mission here? And now all that does is exacerbate the problem, the ego problem, because you have humble people that want to help, but you have an ego, an ego-driven person that is just driving this agenda and now doing it with more authority yeah. because they have the air quotes, they have the experience on the ground. There's a story I remember from this period. It was from May, June in that period. Um, there was an Army intelligence officer who had developed some sources, and he was working on trying to figure out what the, uh, what the imams were saying in the mosques on Fridays. He wanted to know what, what were they telling the people in the mosques. And so he gets a whole bunch of information. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's neutral, whatever. And he brings this to the civilian authorities. And they look at it. They just, they're not interested. They say, that's tactical. Bring it to the Army. And so he says, okay. So he brings it to the Army, and he brings it to a colonel who's an intelligence officer um, for, I guess this would be 3ID at the time, and, or rather 1AD at the time. And uh, he looks at it, and he just, you know, in, in the whole stack of intel reports, he finds a couple of the, um, of the preachers who were kind of making anti-American statements, and he says, well, we have to arrest these people. And the guy's like, well, look, all of, the, all of the imams have to talk like that. We need to tell the difference between the ones who are serious and the ones who aren't, right? And it got to the point where he couldn't get anywhere with the military and he couldn't get anywhere with the civilian side, so he just stopped bringing these reports in because he figured he was putting his own sources in danger and he wasn't getting anywhere with the people he, were, he was bringing them to, and so he just stopped. And he told all his sources, just cut loose, just forget you knew me, I don't want to get you in trouble or anything like that. So there's just no, communi- no good communication going on. Yeah, and, and again, if you take a step back, when somebody brings you intel like that, and your first reaction is you got to attack them, when your actual first reaction is how can we build a relationship with these mm-hmm. people who have influence over the civilian populace? That, that's what you ask yourself. Yeah. Summer of 2003, we've got hundreds of thousands of fighting age men on the street. They were cops. They were, uh, you know, they, were, they were Iraqi servicemen. They're out of work. A lot of them are already armed. And meanwhile, there is a budding insurgency that's starting to crop up. We don't really know it yet, but by the summer of 2003, they're already paying $500 an operation with a bonus for providing video of killing American soldiers. And these are people who don't have, they don't have income anymore. And um, a lot of them are pretty angry about it, and they don't need, um, you know, some, they, they don't need a strong Islamist uh, reason to want to go set an IED somewhere at this point. And a lot of them start doing it. 
and um, they start to pick up over the course of the summer. And now you're not there yet. Yeah, and and really at this point they were doing a lot of mortar attacks, pot a lot shots. of a lot of pot shots, a lot of RPG attacks. The IED thing wasn't it, it wasn't quite getting it was getting started, yeah. Yeah, but it was very very young in its in its uh, technological advancements that they were going to make. And, they, they and, and there didn't seem to, to be any coordination to it. It seemed to be individuals who were kind of. And I will say that at, at you know now looking back, we see this downward spiral. Um, we see the beginning. You know, you know, you see really. I wouldn't even say we see the downward spiral. Looking back, that's 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 giving ourselves. T- we're giving ourselves too much credit. What you see is okay. Uh, you know, when you see a. You know, when you look at a. a uh, uh, what's it called? A whirlpool. You know what I'm saying? You see like a little bit of movement on the surface and maybe you notice that it's all moving in the same direction. Maybe you notice there's a little ve- vector point in the middle of that whirlpool. It has a little dip, just a little dip. But you can't see like the, the downward spiral. You don't see the vortex yet. Mm. I would say somebody that was really, really paying attention might have been able to see a little tiny dip I think to everyone else, to me, to my guys, uh, it was these things. We weren't connecting them yet. We could barely tell that there was a move, that there was a that everyone's moving in the same direction, or that there was a movement in the same direction. So it's still not clear. It's very clear looking back. I mean, it's very clear. You know, when you're looking back, you're like, oh yeah. And I remember, I remember when they, um, when they. When they did the dissolution of the of the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police, it was it was kind of like a, a little bit of a surprise more than it was. What did you? Are you kidding me? You know, you think you know naively think. Okay, well, I, I guess you know, makes sense, right? Makes sense. Uh, Centcom literally got informed by a written note. Yeah. <laughs> so again, from my position, platoon commander. Looking out, going, that seems weird. Yeah. But you're thinking, okay, well. It's kind of outside your purview. It, it, not only outside my purview, but, you know, I wasn't on the ground yet, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I was, I definitely wasn't, you know, the, the station chief up there that's monitoring all this stuff. You're looking at it going, okay. What I what I don't want to do is sit here and come across like oh I I told you so no that would be a lie for me it was like oh they disbanded the Iraqi army Uh, it's I bet you know in my mind I'm thinking okay they're probably going to rebuild it from the ground up okay got it whatever did you start to get an idea in August that things were changing so August second or rather. I believe it was the 7th, um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq announces itself by hitting the Jordanian embassy. Um, just blows the hell out of it. 17 dead, 40 wounded. Um, August 19th, just two weeks later, they hit the UN building. I think they were in a hotel, and they hit that, that side of the hotel, killed 22, wounded over 100. And the UN special envoy for Iraq was apparently this very well-loved, I don't know a lot about him, but a very well-loved uh, Brazilian guy, very well-respected, and he got trapped in the rubble and died while people listened to him scream. And the UN bugged out. 
they had like 800 people in Iraq before that. They were down to 15 within like a month. They were out of there. Um, and then the end of August, the 29th, Al-Qaeda in Iraq starts hitting Shia shrines in the south. They hit one in, uh, I think there was a, a celebration, a Shia celebration going on in Najaf, and they hit the Imam Ali shrine down there and killed 95 people, wounded over 500 people. And so they're at a point now where they're not hitting U.S. targets. They're just hitting, they're causing, they're starting to cause some chaos. And we didn't know who was doing this yet. At least as far as I know, I don't think U.S. intelligence was putting this all together. Uh, you know, we didn't have the Zarqawi letter yet. We didn't have any of the videos. We didn't, we didn't quite know what was going on, but we were starting to get an idea that something was changing in August. Um, as you were getting ready to get on that plane, I mean, were you starting to realize you were going over there to get into a real fight? We knew that things were bad. No, I shouldn't even say bad. We knew that it was unstable. Yeah. We knew that it was unstable. We knew that our guys, the SEALs that were there, were out hitting targets. Their work was fairly consistent. Uh, as I remember, I could be wrong, but from what I remember, you know, they were like hitting targets and it was pretty consistent the whole time. And, you know, they were getting bad guys. And so, you know, here's, a, here's a, something that I talk about a, a decent amount, which is our, our impression, my impression, and America's impression was we're hitting targets, we're catching bad guys, there's a finite number of bad guys, and once we catch them. The dead enders, yeah. Yep, once we, once we catch them, okay, well, then we'll be done. I hope they don't catch them all before I get there yeah. so I can get some of these bad guys. I mean, you remember they had the deck of cards. Here's the guys we need to get. And okay, so from my perspective, uh, it seemed to be getting, it seemed to be, um, there was, the, the, I would say the clear, um, the clear separation was you had the American flags, the kids with American flags welcoming, and seemingly very quickly, that was over, and we were, I don't know if I want to use the word the enemy, but we were no longer, we did not appear to be any longer welcome. But the, feel, the feeling that I had, what I th which I think most people would agree with, was that the people that were waving the American flags were there. Yeah. And they were ready to wave those flags. We saw them wave flags. They've hidden those flags. There's some bad actors that have moved in we need to get rid of them, and then then we'll be okay again, right? It was, it seemed like a finite problem that, you know, we had a glimpse of like where the Iraqi people's attitude could be, mm -hmm. and clearly some something was going on, and we still had work to do because there's there's people that are attacking groups within. Iraq, and we got to go help the, the people that were waving those American flags. It almost seems like there was a mentality. I get this from a lot of civilian leadership, too, that similar to what you're saying, there's a, there's a finite number of bad guys in there. We have to go eliminate them, and then things will be all right. It's, it's almost like saying that we're thinking of, of, of 
eliminating bad guys rather than an overarching mission of providing security. It's like saying once we get rid of all the gangsters in this town, we can disband the police. Yes, and you know one one thing I was going to say as you opened up with or whenever you were you reading that um, piece, the immediate thing, the immediate thing you got to do is security for the populace. Yeah. That's like the uh, that's the that's the overarching or, or one of the overarching goals of of in counterinsurgency. First priority is we've got to get get security for the populace. And so the minute that you see the security for the populace going away, you're like, okay, this is bad. This is bad. But but to answer your question or to take that thread a little bit further, yes, it seemed like there was a finite number of, of now, now of bad actors. It didn't seem logical that people, and this is again, this is where you get a cultural difference. Mm. The cultural difference is in America, if you tell me, you know, that you got my back, mm, we, 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 that, that carries some weight. That means you're going to stick with me. In Iraq, especially for people that, that, you know, that what's the expression? They're looking for the winning horse, right? They're, they're going to bet on the win. They're, they're, they're going to look. When they see the horse that's going to win, that's where they're going to put, put, their, put their bets. They see America rolling in. And that's a isn't that like an Osama bin Laden quote? Have you heard that quote? No, tell me. It's something along the lines of you know we we will bet on the winning horse. Like when we see a horse that's winning, that's the one we're going to get behind. I mean, they they live in a country where they know the consequences of betting on the wrong horse. Exactly. I don't think we knew that. Yeah. And so, if you think to yourself, well, there was people that were pro-America slash pro-freedom, let's just call it pro-democracy. I mean, people that from our perception were on board. We, I mean, look, we saw them pulling down the statue. What, what, when, when did the statue come down? May. We, we see them pulling down the statue yeah. of Saddam, hitting it with their shoe, which, you know, hey, we know about their culture. We know that hitting them with the sole of your shoe is the worst insult you can give. They're, they're on board. They're on our team. There's a little bit of an omen with that thing, though, is uh, the Iraqis were trying to pull that thing down. And they couldn't do it themselves. Yeah. We had to go help them out. That's very foretelling. And, um, you know, I, th- I don't think that those people who were waving the American flags and then put them away necessarily just changed their mind. There were a lot of people that were angry that we did come in there and knock off the state without a plan to provide security afterwards. And they blamed us when things would happen to them. And, and, that, and that's fine. But those people could be won back. Um, what they can't be won back from is when – flying an American flag is going to get you skinned alive in your home the next day, and we're not doing anything about it. Um, And so General Abizade... Well, well, that goes back to to something we already talked about, which is if you have to pick a side, if you have to pick, if if you have, if you have, if Daryl has to pick a side, side one is I'm going to help you build a shop, and side two is if you... Don't do what I want you to do. I'm going to murder your if entire family. If you help build that shop, then. Whose side are you picking? I'll help build the shop if you can protect me. Yeah. Well, that, that's and if you don't see that protection, right. and that's what took us another three years to establish, yeah. which I'm sure we'll get to, yeah. but the choice that we gave them was like, hey, we're, we're going to help you. We're here to help you. We'll, we'll, we're here to try and protect you. And, and also what we have to remember is, man, the Americans, we're, we're – we don't. We can't. We can't discriminate very well yet, yeah. and that's a problem. And where I thought you were going to go with that is, 
when you, I'll wave the American flag, but then when all of a sudden you put a main gun round through my, you know, th- through my uh, mosque or my, you know, the, 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 the grocery store on the corner or you run through, run over my house, I'm not happy. So you add that into the mix along with all the military age males that now are out of a job and are worried that that they're going to now be the minority in this country. I mean, there's we're brewing up some bad, yeah. bad stuff. But to answer your question going in, the way it looked to me at the time was, look, we had people waving American flags. Now there's now there seems to be some people that are stepping up to try and stop that. We we need to go and and get rid of those people and help the people with the American help flags. the people with the American flags yeah, get their country together. So um, as the violence starting to pick up over the course of the summer. One of the things that we realize we don't have and that we need is information. And so I, I got to imagine when you started to show, there's a big push for getting us actionable intelligence, right? There yep. was this General Abizé's big, big word. Um, and right, again, what does that actually mean? What that means is a very short-sighted business plan. Which is that? Because that what that there right there tells you is General Abizade is seeing the same thing I was seeing, which is there's bad guys. We need to go get them. Mm-hmm. What does actionable intelligence mean? You can take action. Actionable take intelligence action. mean there's a bad guy. You go get him. Yeah. A, 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 a person that says, "Hey, what we need to do is protect the civilian populace." That's a totally different mm-hmm. mindset. It's a totally different mindset, and actionable intelligence means something completely different. Do you think there was also a bias in, we did not have the resources to protect protect the civilians across that country. We did have the resources available to go take out some bad guys. And yes. so maybe we just got tunnel vision on the thing that, you know, that we did have the capacity to actually to, to do. It, it is also a short, it's a battle of short-term gratification versus long-term mm-hmm. gratification. Yeah. And when I go out and get a bad guy, I feel good, I feel like I did a good job. I high five my platoon mates and we say, let's go do it again. And so you show up in <clears throat> September, October, somewhere in there, and what? so what are you told when you get there? Like, what's your mission? Hey, our mission is to go capture, kill bad guys. So somebody's gonna deliver you a piece of intelligence, says there's a guy here. Yep, we're gonna develop the intelligence, we're gonna okay. get intelligence, we're gonna marry up intelligence, we're gonna collaborate intelligence, we're gonna get intelligence. Yeah. Okay. Through myriad of different sources, including some of the people that you're capturing as you go along, yep. including some of the people that we're capturing, including sources, including you know the whole nine yards, yeah. SIGINT, human, the whole nine yards. Yeah, we had a we had an epic at the time. Just it was everything I could have hoped for. You know, here's a target. Like it's like almost what you picture in the movies, right? Here's a target package. You guys come up with a plan. We literally get a. Uh, a piece of overhead imagery. There's a red X on the building. Go get, go take down this building. Bring us back the, bring us back the military age males. And you've got a lot of autonomy to plan this out yourselves. <laughs> Total and okay. unmitigated autonomy. And what's your op tempo going in? All the time. The Just most we ever up. did was, f- I think we did four ops in 24 hours. Sleeping during the day and hitting it up at night. No, not even sleeping. Just going from target going. to target. Like yeah. come back, interrogate, figure out the next guy, go get him. So really, really. Um, and this is mostly around Baghdad? 95% Baghdad. We did do some operations in other areas. What parts of Baghdad are you talking about? Like um, Everywhere in Baghdad. So has, uh, 
have we gotten to the point yet where I know in spring, by spring of 2004, Haifa Street starts to be a pretty ugly place. Mm-hmm. So for everybody out there, Haifa Street is, I don't know, a couple miles, three or four mile long boulevard yeah. that runs along the Tigris River in Baghdad. And on the other side of the river is Sadr City, which is a Shiite area. And on the other side- It's a Shiite area. It's also like a, like a ghetto. Yeah. And on the other side of Haifa Street is also- heavily Shiite area, but Haifa Street itself is primarily a Sunni uh, area, I think. And so it kind of became like a fault line. Um, had that become, I mean, I've seen I've seen video from spring of 2004 where people are driving down, undercover reporters driving down that road, and there's just Al-Qaeda flags off the trees in the uh, median. Yeah. Um, this is one thing that was one thing that was not good about this deployment for me, well, it was good as not good, it was, whatever. it was the way it was. The way it was for me was we were going to hit targets. Um, like my next deployment in Ramadi, I never left Ramadi. Ramadi's a little tiny city. It's mm-hmm. three miles across. In Baghdad, I would rarely go to, the, I, probably, I probably went to, I, I went different places all the time. So, we were in and out. We would go in. We'd be, we'd be in and out of a target in 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. The way most people think of SEALs operate. The way, that's why I'm saying it yeah. was like so, um, it, it, was, it was awesome. You know, it was awesome. And we, would, we knew like, well, we knew Sadr City was bad. We knew, we knew certain areas. We knew about Haifa Street, but it hadn't become Haifa Street yet. Okay. Like we didn't think of it that way. Also because we were staying at the Baghdad International Airport. Mm-hmm. Where, so for us, it was a transit to get into Baghdad. We weren't living there. The green zone was massive too. Yeah. The green zone was this massive area and we'd go to the green zone and when you're in the green zone, it's pretty, um, you're, you're detached, right? It's not like being out, you know, we'd, we'd, sometimes we'd go to do an op somewhere in, in Baghdad. We'd pull into some army, you know, little checkpoint and there was guys hanging it out there. A lot of, a lot of special forces guys, a lot of the SF Green Berets hanging it out there a little tiny you know they'd, they'd be in a house somewhere with a perimeter around it that they'd kind of haphazardly set up you know or not haphazardly but they they'd put together so those guys if you asked them they'd be like oh this street that street kind of like i'll talk about ramadi like mm-hmm. oh here's this street here's this neighborhood here's what was bad over here here's what this building was like we knew it to that level and the guys in the platoon knew it to even more detail and then you break down the platoon, you know, you had one platoon on one part of the city and the other platoon, they, they knew everything. So for me, like, oh no, Haifa Street, yeah, I, I, Haifa Street probably heard about it, yeah. you know, um, but it hadn't become a thing yet. You don't have any territory that's like yours. Like it sounds like you're nope. getting you're some. There, there's a high value target that's yep. out there somewhere and okay, call up the SEAL, send them over there. Yep. And there's not a lot of structure to you know you're doing this mission and then that builds on it and goes to this mission and next and next and next well that's always the ideal yeah. is that hey we grab one guy we figure out where his oh, right, friend is right. and we go to his friend and that did happen okay but a lot of times there's also when you look at the network mm-hmm. the network is not organized it's a network it's a it's almost like a randomized network and you got one guy that's got four or five people in a cell and maybe he's part of one other guy's who, who, who's running another cell. So it's not like a chain of command with you know 500 insurgents on the bottom and then one at the top. No, it's just right. splattered bad little groups, little cells of five, six, seven bad guys. And you know, like you said earlier, it's, hey, I just got fired. I lost my job. I, I, you know, I was a platoon sergeant. I still am in contact with 
my machine gunner, my RPG gunner, and my uh, and my point man. I'm gonna call up, you know, Ahmed and Mohammed and mm-hmm. and whatever, and we're gonna put together a little hit, and then I know I can get paid, and I'll give them a little bit of money, and we're, now all of a sudden we're in business. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of that going on. And at this early point, you've got uh, former Iraqi military who are just kind of nationalist insurgents. You got people who are just doing it for the money. You haven't gotten to that point that we get to in 05 where Al Qaeda in Iraq kind of forces everybody onto the same onto the same page, right? right? So you got all sorts of different groups and people with varying levels of commitment, I imagine. And so you're doing this all fall through the winter and yep. into the spring. Yep. Just um I mean, you just you're, you're so Jocko's at war. I mean, you're you're probably how you feeling? Uh yeah, I mean, we we are we are just I mean, I and this is interesting, and this can kind of give you some insight into, you know, you're you're reading this as if this was so obvious to see, yeah, yeah. right? I'm there, I'm in it, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm happy I'm here. I'm happy I'm getting to do this right now. This will probably be over. This will probably be the only combat deployment I ever get, and thank God it's this it's this good and the op tempo is this high and we're doing this many operations and we're doing our part, right? I felt very good about it. That was my feeling right through the beginning of April up, up, was, up. was, hey, it, it seemed finite. Even even to the actual point that we had a a giant uh, target board and, and I, I told my commanding officer, uh, you seen the movie The Beautiful Mind? A Beautiful Mind. Mm-hmm. So you know he had this crazy looking target thing. I said, "Hey, sir, in order to, because I, I had a hard time, and when you look back, you can realize why I had, a, I had a hard time putting this picture together in my head of what all these groups like. I'm like, wait a second, is this guy connected to someone else? Or we grab this guy? Where, where, where does this lead to? You weren't the only one at that time. Exactly. So I say, I gotta." put this thing up and we put up this physical board to be able to visualize everyone we're going after and it took up a like a big wall probably a probably a 20 maybe even a 25 foot wall in a in a in a GP tent and then you know whatever seven feet tall and it was covered with pictures and it was covered with strings and it was covered with you know we put this beautiful mind thing together so we could actually I wanted to be able to see the progress that we were making and so, and we did, and we'd put a, a, a green, you know the Ghostbusters symbol, like yeah. the thing with a slash through it? Mm-hmm. If we caught them, we'd put a green with a slash through it. If we killed them, we'd put it with a red. And we'd get intel from other units, and other units were captured, killing. And so we started picking away at this board. And it seemed like it was a finite thing. It seemed like, hey, we're here. We're making progress. We're here. We're make. We're get. You know, look. Hey, in the last week, we've rolled up seven bad guys, yeah. and I know we're not the only unit that's doing this. So we got units all over this country, and they're all rolling up bad guys. This ain't gonna last I, forever. I, I'm glad to hear you say that because part of the impression that's gotten back to a lot of us who have followed the war at like a New York Times, Wall Street Journal kind of level is that the military knew that things were not going well and that we were not getting anywhere, and that the civilian leadership back home didn't want to hear it. And so that, that just, although the military was on, who was on the ground, they knew the reality of the situation. It was just, that wasn't getting fed back because the civilians didn't want to hear it. But it sounds like things were not that clear. Well, 
we'll get to it in yeah. this story. Yeah. You're gonna see that everything that I just told you, yeah. I am going to have a moment of clarity when I get to Ramadi. And it's very obvious and it's directly related to what I just said. So so I will tell you this, yeah. no, that is not accurate. Yeah. And people on the ground, myself included, all the way up through April, we were thinking this is a finite problem. There are still Iraqis out there. And by the way, you know, the Iraqis that were waving the American flags, they didn't disappear. Yeah. And we would get the we would get the smile and we would get the the high five offer and we would get the like we did we did one op in downtown Baghdad in the middle of the day. It was awesome. I mean, because Baghdad was kind of like um, it's a, it's it's a very Western looking city, and at this time there was commerce, there was things going on, right? So there was there was activity, and so we went into a crowded. There was cars everywhere. I mean, it was like it was like a city. It was like San Diego. I think people lose that. They yeah. forget that these are just cities. So we because at night right there was a curfew. Yeah. So we did a lot of our operations. Ninety five percent of our operations at night, yeah. and there was a curfew. Yeah. So what that curfew meant was that people had to get their work, get everything done during the day. So when we rolled out into Baghdad in the daytime for this one daytime hit we did in downtown Baghdad, it was a zoo. It was a zoo. There was cars everywhere, there was pedestrians everywhere, there was people everywhere. And and we were driving, by the way, in unarmored Humvees, window, you know, no doors, we had taken the doors off, we'd turn our seats outboard so we'd be facing outboard so we could address threats if they came up. And we had pre-staged in, in the green zone and we confirmed our intel that the bad guy we were looking for was in where we thought he was gonna be, which was like in an office building above a shop. So we, we roll down there and this is like, you know, it's, it's like going into a crowded city and here we come, you know, and, and we looked different, right? We were, we were SEALs, we had, uh, you know, our, our Humvees, were we had big like we'd built like um kind of like they look like mad max vehicles so when we rolled out it was obvious that we were a little bit different and then we since we had all of our seats facing outboard and we had guys in the back we carried guys in the back open open back vehicles they look like pickup trucks basically those and we had uh, articulating arms with weapons on them and so the, our vehicles look like porcupines with guns sticking everywhere, very well coordinated. We drove, even though you know I told you that we hadn't had much experience in driving. As soon as we, as soon as we got a hold of it, like I also told you, seals adapt and seals figure stuff out, and then we want to do it really well. So we did that. And like my platoon chief, he was a like an off road guy, mm. and so he was the one that was kind of spearheading making those things into Mad Max vehicles and putting like bumper plates on them and uh, uh, so we could push people out of the way. And when we rolled into Baghdad for that, for this one of these daytime hits that we did, and we did, we did more than one daytime hit, but this one was just awesome. And you know, you just see the civilians are getting out of our way and we come in, we scream in, you know, scream into the, the right in front of the building that we're going into, Everyone dismounts in a matter of seconds, storming in there. I mean, it was very uh, dynamic. And then, you know, we, 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 we do our mission. And that's what we were doing. And so it seemed like a finite thing. It seemed like 
with us and with everyone else that was doing this, we were going to be able to get ahead of this. And my point on telling that about the daytime was people weren't looking at us like invaders. They weren't looking at us like we were doing something wrong. You, they were kind of fired up, man. Like they were kind of, they were kind of, you know, it wasn't, you didn't get the negative feeling, right? And I remember the first time I saw like a legitimate, just straight up jihadist. The first time that I was face to face with a jihadist was in Fallujah and we did a hit in downtown Fallujah and we pulled a bunch of guys off target because it was like a hotel situation and we didn't know how to figure out which guy was the bad guy we were looking for. So I was like, take everyone. So we took like 13 military age males off target. When is this? This is like uh, probably December, November, December, 03. Okay. And we get the guys, we get back to the, the uh, we get back to drop these guys off. And it was actually just an army unit. I was gonna say it was Marine Corps, it was an army unit. And the, you know, so, so now we're turning these guys over to the, to the uh, tactical holding facility, the TIF. And when we're, you know, so we, we have them all bagged up. We got bags over their heads and we got them zip tied. And so now we're going off, like taking pictures of them all. And, you know, I'm like, oh, the guy looks like a kind of a normal guy, whatever. This guy looks like kind of a normal guy, whatever. And then like pulled the bag off of one guy's head. And this guy's looking at me and it's like, oh, this motherfucker wants to kill me. That's what's happening right now. And I was like, this guy's a straight up jihadist. And, you know, they ran, of course, and it was like, right, you know. So even though I say, hey, you know, it's hard to tell who's bad and who's good. And when you run into, uh, there was a lot of times where I'd look at someone and be like, that person wants me to die. And, but most of the time it was, that person's, you know, smiling or, and then you, look, it was, it was a bell curve, right? Some people stoked that you were there. Some people filled with hatred, a bunch of people kind of in the middle, not wanting to take one side or the other because they want to bet on the winning horse. And that's what we were dealing with. But because you'd see those people out in the middle of the day, and, and, and not only that, like I said, in the daytime, guess what they're doing? Like when we're driving down the highway, there's cars on the highway. There's like cars, there's people, there's gas, there's, there's, there's people doing things, there's right. markets are open. So you're not thinking that this is, this is desperado, right? You're thinking like, okay, cool, we got some people we gotta clean up. Those were the things that indicated to me, we have a finite, like that we can win. We can, we, we're gonna, this'll be over. This'll be over. All that commerce going away pretty All soon. that, yeah, yeah, but at the time, okay, yeah, yeah, commerce. Yeah people, yeah. um, you know, little shops set up. And I'm not talking about like one or two shops. I'm talking massive, like a, a freaking city. farmer's market, yeah. like a farmer's market. Like that's what's happening. So I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, this is going to fall apart. I'm thinking, cool, we'll get rid of these bad guys. And then these these normal people that are happy to see us will be able to, will be able to uh, continue to grow and everything will be fine. And there's no, probably zero chance that I'm going to be coming back here on deployment because this will be over and we'll be done. It was just a few months after you went in on that Fallujah operation that the four Blackwater guys got lynched in that city, mutilated, tortured, killed, burned, and hung up as a crowd of people cheered on, cheered for it. And after that, we didn't go into that city with less than 6,000 Marines. 
so when that happened um it was like we were like when we, when I went into Fallujah and I, th- I think I only I mean I did I don't know how many ops we did in Fallujah but it wasn't a lot. It might what is that? It's about twenty miles west of Baghdad. Yeah, it's like twenty or about, miles. Yeah, another twenty or thirty is Ramadi. Yep. Okay. Um, when we went in there, we knew it was bad. Like Fallujah was bad. It like, was already Fallujah bad. bad. We, we there was no Fallujah was going into Fallujah was was higher risk in our minds than going into Baghdad. Baghdad. Was you, you, it was a very neighborhood centric, like, oh, yeah, when you're going over there, be careful. Kind of like what you said with Haifa Street. Like, hey, we knew we'd get intel. We, oh, yeah, this area is bad. There was this many attacks. We had like the board up with the amount of attacks that were coming from the enemy. So, um, when we knew we were going to Fallujah, it was, it was not good. Mm-hmm. And you could feel it too. Yeah. Cause you could feel it because you roll in there and there's, it's, there's not people out on the streets. It's quiet. Um, not quiet in like a peaceful way, but quiet in an eerie way. Yeah. And when you do see someone, they're looking at you, maybe not with the full-born, I want to kill you, but not friendly. And you can feel that, and you know that. Sure. So going in there, um, you, you definitely could, could could feel that there was maybe it was going to take a little longer there or whatever but hey even when we rolled up those 13 guys in Fallujah like most of the guys that I looked in their eyes I was like oh you know he'll be out tomorrow he'll understand we we just got a bad guy out of his you know out of this area cool the uh the lynching in Fallujah was just a couple days before you were involved in a pretty important op um that was 31st of March I think and around April 2nd April 3rd just getting near to the end of your deployment. Um, Bremer orders Sauter's house surrounded while well, you want to tell the story? Well, there's there's a couple things. So first of all, on the Fallujah thing, when, when the uh, Blackwater guys, you know, I was, you know, telling my task unit commander, hey, we can go. And he's like, I, you know, I know. And he ran up to our headquarters, his boss, and was like, hey, Chocolate guys, they, they can go. We can go. We can go get those guys down. And, and they told us no. Um, they, to go retrieve them. Oh, about, yeah. I was like, yeah. we will go. And you know, this is this is hard to understand. I don't know if you'll understand, but you know, to plan a military operation, you know, people. I was raised. Let me put it this way: I was raised on a ninety-six hour planning cycle for how long it takes to plan and prepare for an operation. Um, my boss at some point during my deployment said, hey, Jocko, if we have like a, t- a time-sensitive target, how much time do you need to prepare and launch? And my response after I assessed it was 15 minutes. So, so that's where, when you're on an op tempo like that, like, and that was a no shit, you, if we got, if you wanted us to roll, 15 minutes we'd be in vehicles and we'd be rolling. And we did that on multiple occasions where it was, hey, we got the call. I have, I have, we did one where I had guys that were lounging around and they were in, <laughs> they were in turrets of, of our Hummers and like civilian clothes with their kid on. And you know, like just 
We did operations where we were in civilian clothes intentionally. That's different. It, in this particular case, like guys had gone to the exchange or something and put on civvies and all of a sudden the call came and boom, it's like, hey, load up. So to, to think about that 15 minutes will roll and we did it on multiple occasions. So when that happened with those guys in Fallujah, you know, I'm like, you know, we're seeing it on the news, we're hearing about it, and I'm saying, hey, bo-, you know, to my boss, get us, get us permission to go, let's go. And he did his best, and they were like, no, and the, the Marines ended up going to take care of that situation. But you could, now things are starting. You know, that, that was, with all the other things that you mentioned, mm. with the UN being attacked, with the embassies being attacked, Earlier that March, earlier in the March before then, I think yeah. uh, there was a couple Shia celebrations in Baghdad and Karbala that got blown the hell out of by yep. AQI. And each one of those were, they weren't, they didn't hit me like they hit, like that did. When the, when the, when it happened, when that happened, when the guys got killed at Fallujah, um, it was okay. They, they want to kill us. And you know, you felt that before, but they want to kill us and they ambushed us and you know they shot rpgs at us and you know but that was that was a another level right that was another level that was a hate that was a hatred that wasn't a you know this is the difference between whatever the guy that murders his you know his his neighbor in a fight and and you know stabs him and goes oh god i'm sorry and you go sheesh and the guy that you know cuts off his wife's head and yeah. and and yeah. mutilates her body. That's the difference. That's to me. That was the wake up call of oh okay, this is this is this is gonna get ugly. A couple of days after that happened, though, you got a different mission. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned Sadr. So yeah. Muqtad al Sadr, you know, a, a, a very influential, and I use that word. It's not the right word. Influential, you know, you when you think of influential in America, you think of somebody that's, you know, let's use words like sane and ha, has, you know, smart and has a wields, wields, you know, a, a lot of sway with people in a positive way. So this guy was influential, but in, all, in a very negative way. Um, and, and Shiite Muslim. Shiite Muslim. And he, 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 he was a real problem and was causing problems. And he was a good leader, charismatic. You know, when you see pictures of him, you go, I can see where, you know, when you, when you and I talk about what draws people into a cult-like situation and a lot of it has to do with being that leader, this guy's that kind of leader, mm-hmm. you know, a fiery guy, a charismatic guy. He looks, he looks kind of crazy, you know, and he looks like he could instill fear in people. And so... He was causing problems. One of those guys whose eyes come through in pictures. Yeah. yeah. So he was one of those people. And we had been targeting him. And when I say we, yes, me and my platoon, but everybody was targeting him, meaning tracking him. What's he doing? He's a bad guy. Can we go get him? Should we go get him? Will you go get him? And and now the th- the big thing about the big difference with him was he was a guy that was a national presence. Yeah. And really, an international. Well, there presence. was an active murder warrant on him at this time, I believe. Yeah. So he is, but but he's a he's a recognizable, true. He's a political political presence. leader yeah. and a, and a real presence. Whereas all these other little cell guys that I've talked about, these guys were not. These guys were 
nickel and dime, you know, criminals, thugs. Sure, they were running a cell of four guys, six guys, whatever. Maybe we got some guys that were more senior. I don't even remember. But this guy was a totally different story. This this guy is a totally different story. Um, you know, this would be like, I, I guess if you wanted, this would be like a, you know, a demo, you know, Trump is president right now. This would almost be like the Democratic challenger. Yeah. Or, or maybe of two or three Democratic challengers that are running to be, you know, get the nod from, from the DMC. He's one of those guys. At this, he, at this point in at the this story, point. some of uh, the intelligence estimates that I've seen had his militia up to 10,000 people. He's a powerful guy. And the question was, can we go get this guy? And what will happen if we do? And this idea was getting batted around the whole time that I was there. You know, and there was times we spun up the target package. I don't know if we, well, I know we never loaded up to go do it, but we definitely had, you know, oh, all right, hey, let's let's do some planning on it. Oh, it might pop. Oh, we might get approval. And now you're start, starting to talk about, and almost every operation that I did was approved at, you know, the, the, the you know, 05, maybe 06 level. So this guy was now getting approved. This was like a much, much higher approval. Yeah. It's a political decision. It's a political decision. Yeah. So we're going back and forth the whole time. And I never even thought twice about it. You know, like, okay, we'll go get him. Not whatever. You tell me what to do, man. I'll, I'll go. I'll go do it. You know, like we said on an earlier episode, man, that you put a target, you put a red, red X on a house in Denmark. Sign me up. I'll put go me get in, some. Coach. Um, so we get this. What we get is they, the, the powers that be decide we don't really want to get Sodder um, out of the gate because we don't know what's going to happen. He's got 10,000 militia. He's got all this influence. This could cause a real freaking problem, a real problem. Yeah. When we've already got a problem over we already, here in Fallujah, we already got, Sunnis, we already got so. Sunni problems. And, and my you know, assessment, had I been in charge of everything, would have been like, hey, well, do we want to rip? You, how about we just rip the Band-Aid off? You know, that could be one way to look at it. Could also be. Especially given what happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what we finally end up doing is we get the we get the go ahead to go and hit, do a hit, and capture one of his senior lieutenants. That's down in Najaf, right? That's down in Najaf, which is the, you know, the freaking. Shiite holy city. Shiite south, holy south of Baghdad. City. Yeah, you can't, it's, it's the spot. Yeah. And we get the, we get the order. Um, that we we get cleared to do this operation, and it, it's a pretty straightforward operation. It's kind of what we've been doing the whole time we've been there. It's a little further away, and we we've done some operations, as I said, outside of Baghdad, and we driven. You know, sometimes we drove four or five hours to get to do a hit somewhere, occasionally, but Najaf was kind of like that. So it was a long transit to get down there. Um, but pretty standard hit. You know, we rolled in. Did it feel that way? Like, did you have an idea that this is a little bit, you know, th- this is a little bit different? Yeah, I mean, we we knew it. I knew, you know, this was this was probably the first target that was a true HVT yeah. for us. So, we, people will throw HVT on any anybody, you know, high value target. Yeah. We we got a lot of targets, yeah. you know. Uh, some of them more important than others. And now that I'm thinking back, we, we got some pretty big targets, some pretty, we got some guys that ran some pretty big cells. 
Uh, in fact, that daytime hit that we did in downtown Baghdad, that was a that guy was running a pretty decent amount of of bad guys. So we did some good some good ops. Well, Sauter himself, after this op goes down, lets you know how high value this guy was. Yeah. So we go in middle of the night, very quiet. Um, we set up, uh, and I, 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 you know, you know, I always remember this is that, you know, we're very quiet. We would always, you know, put our stop our vehicles some distance away from the actual target and then we would foot patrol you know very quietly so no one was going to know we were coming and and you know plus we'd get there at you know two o'clock in the morning whatever blacked out and whenever you would do this correctly and you had a little bit of luck on your side because bad luck is dogs barking bad luck is you know some drunk guy uh, on a rooftop yelling at you there's like there's like things happen this wasn't one of those nights very lucky silence just just quiet and it's quiet how, how many are you uh, there's probably i don't know what the total number is but you know we're running a, an assault package so there's probably 20 assaulters going in the house okay. and then there's and then there's you know a bunch of guys driving the vehicles, manning the vehicles, and external security. It's a pretty decent sized package, and so it's all just dead silent until that breach goes. And then the breach goes, you know, everyone wakes up. But it was again, we're in and out of there in a matter of minutes. We were we were good at this point. We we were good. So we're in and out of there in a matter of minutes, and. And back on the road. Back on the road, and as a matter of fact, you know, this is the first time we did this. As soon as we got on the road, we we uh, linked up with helicopters that came and landed and took him. So that's that's when you know. You, you, that's how I knew. Like as we were planning, I'm like, oh, they're they're, they're really concerned about this guy. If they're going to land helicopters and get this guy into the confinement because they don't want him with us, they want him. They want him. So that's how I knew it was going to be a. Um, you know that's that's one of the ways I knew how important this was, and of course, look, we knew we know you know we knew this was one of Sauter's guys, we knew that he was one of his top guys. We, maybe not as much of a top guy. Maybe it wasn't a great test case. Yeah, because Sauter went nuts. Yeah, and the whole country went nuts, and. He took his Mahdi army from Sadr City, went and installed himself in Najaf, and the Shiites just blew up. Yeah, and it was very bad planning with regards to putting everyone else in the country in a posture to be ready for that. Because the army, the Marine Corps, um, actually, yeah, mostly the army around Sadr City they hadn't been given, at least they didn't appear to have been given a heads up. And even if they were given a heads up, they weren't quite, uh, didn't quite know what posture they needed to get into because the Shias, they they started to get after it hardcore. uh, We had most of our forces around focusing on Baghdad, Mosul, and out west around Fallujah, because Fallujah 1's coming up right now. And we had a lot of our allies, um, you know, the Poles and the Bulgarians, some of our other allies down in a lot of the southern Shiite cities, and they just start getting hammered, right? Yeah. Yeah. The um, Well, there's a couple things that happen. The CPA in, in the Jaff yeah. 
started to get overrun. Right. And as that started to happen, so we so we did the hit and then drove back, and it's like a five-hour drive, and, and yeah, it's something like a five-hour drive. So we'd come back, and by the time we come back, almost, and I, I don't remember the dates great on this, but almost as quickly as we got back, it was, hey, Jocko, the CPA in the Joff is getting overrun. It's on already. And they, you know, we're sending you down there as QRF, which to me, QRF, five hours, this is not a QRF. Well, they didn't have helicopters where they said, you know, hey, we want you to drive down there. And I'm like, so roger that. 10 hours of driving. Yeah. And I'm like, roger that. You know, yeah. like, you if you want me to do something, I'm going to do it, you yeah. know, yeah. unless it just makes no sense whatsoever. So I did I did push back a little bit. I'm like, wait a second. You mean of all the units that are between Baghdad and Najaf, I'm there's not, you're, you're the, I'm the best option you've got yeah. with no armor? And the answer was like, yep. And I said, cool, roger that. And I remember this. My task unit S my task unit senior enlisted advisor, who was a who I mentioned earlier, who was a, a good friend of mine and who at this point on the deployment was like, you know, uh, we we joke about it and it, we joke about it the fact that his wife w- would call me his uh he says he says we're soulmates, right? So we're like total bros, and for whatever reason, he was not going with us. Like they didn't send the task unit commander or the because when he did the hit, the task unit commander came with us, and you know he's the he's the ground force commander. I'm just the assault force commander. Well, for this one, for whatever reason, probably because he could, those guys could provide us better support if they weren't with us, if they were kind of like monitoring what was happening, mm-hmm. if we needed it, they stayed. So as I'm, I'm leaving, uh, I'm getting ready to, you know, like load up my home V and, and my SEA, my senior enlisted advisor, who's my bro, like hugs me. And, and I was like, oh, damn. And, and the reason is because the CPA was getting overrun and we were going down there to do an Alamo. And like my direction to the guys was get all the ammo that we have Everyone get a machine gun, a heavy machine gun, as many as we have, you know, the rockets, the whole nine yards. Like, we're, this is what's happening. And that's what we did. We loaded up and gave my gave my senior enlisted advisor a hug, loaded up the vehicles. We rolled down there, and by the time we got down there, it was over. Uh, you know, it took us five hours to get down there. Yeah. We got down there. We hung out for a night. Nothing, zero happened. And then we drove back. Uh, and that was right around. It would have been probably about the day you were driving back is when First Fallujah started, probably April fourth. No, no, uh, no, the, no, no, no. The uh, like the the articles I've seen had your operation on April second, but maybe that's not right. Wait, I don't. No, I don't think Fallujah one went down right then. It was just a few days after. Um, Thirty first was when the Blackwater guys got taken. Okay, and it was in the week after. Oh, that. Okay, you're just you're just referring to that that initial kind of push into Fallujah. The got initial it. one that got called off after three days. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So that was happening um, as we're doing what we were doing. Yeah. Yep. And and so now, now, I mean, I'm within a few days of. Uh, I don't know when I came home, but I'm within like we're 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 starting to know that we're going home. I may have even sent a couple guys home at this point. Like guys were starting to 
to, to head back home. Um, and I remember we got, there was started, we started to get attacked on our base fairly regularly. We got some mortar attacks. We got some rocket attacks. Uh, we had the main, like one of the gates right by us get assaulted, you know, where myself and that senior enlisted advisor, like we drove out there with our guns and there's, you know, tracer fire coming over the road and we're like, okay, so it's on. And there was a burning vehicle that had been stopped. There was a vehicle born IED, suspected vehicle born IED. And then actually, so this is where I was going to, that all happened. This this thing where the gate got attacked. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, myself and my senior enlisted advisor, we were in a tower and we were just looking out and there was, there was, um, like you could see one of the major routes, one of the major highways out there, and there was like five or six smoking vehicles. And this was, they, they were probably five miles away, but like you could see distinctly there was multiple vehicles that had been attacked, and then our gates getting attacked, and you, you, you got the Shia blowing up in the south. You've got the Sunnis starting to really get wild in Fallujah, and yes. um, and it's time for you to go home. And are you? I mean, how, how do? You, is there? Are, are you locked into like your missions enough that your blinders run? Are you kind of aware that like you're leaving at a time when this country's starting to fall apart? Well, n- this is the first time when I start thinking to myself, I may be back here. Yeah. You know, if you asked me on. In March, if you asked me March if I was going to come back, so so one month prior, you know, if you asked me March 1st if I would be coming back to Iraq, I'd be like, no, this thing will be over. This thing will be over. If you asked me April whatever, April 5th, April 7th, if I was coming back, I'd be like, yeah, there's probably a good chance I'm coming back here because you could see things, I mean, literally see things before my very eyes that indicated this was going to get, this was going to get Western real quick. Came back in mid-April, sometime around then. Uh, you, were, here's a, maybe an indication is uh, where were you when Abu Ghraib hit the news? I don't know. You'd have to tell me when Abu Ghraib hit the April news. April 28th to the end of the month. So you, it wasn't like something where it hit you. You remember where you were when it hit, that kind of thing. You know, I think that we were home. I think that we were home. And by the way, Abu Ghraib was one of those areas. That was a bad, bad area. It was midway. So when I, I remember when I first heard about Abu Ghraib, yeah. I thought a little bit about the prison because we used to send our prisoners there sometimes. But it was a bad area. Yeah. Abu Ghraib was a bad area. They took a lot of casualties up there. And so when I first heard of the news, I heard about Abu Ghraib. I thought, well, you know, what's going on up there in terms of like, has there been attacks? And so the thing that spun out from that We'll talk about that next episode, but is where I would say what you had was what you had between Fallujah, Yakubi, which was Sadr's lieutenant, between those two things, the 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 attack on the contractors and Yakubi, what you had with those two things was a massive spark, like a big massive spark. That actually was a little bit more than a spark. That was like a, like a, um, it was a spark and it had started some kindling was on fire and it was burning pretty bright, but it was still, you could step on it. You could step on it and you might've been able to put it out. Maybe, maybe not. But what Abu Ghraib ended up, I think, being was a massive amount of fuel on the fire. 
and I suppose we can talk about that one. Yeah, that's a that's a topic in itself. Next time, um, if you want to check out our other podcasts, I have a podcast called Jocko Podcast. I have a podcast for kids called the Warrior Kid Podcast, and I have a podcast called Grounded, which is about well, it's about jujitsu and life. And then Daryl has a podcast which is called Martyr Made. And you can also support this podcast by getting some gear from jockostore.com or getting gear from a little place called originmain.com. That if you help those companies, you'll be helping us so we can keep doing this and all of our other podcasts. With that, thanks for listening as things unravel. This is Jocko and Daryl, out.